Welcome to the Fireside Giants podcast by Empire Sports Media. How's it going, Giants fans? Welcome back to Fireside Giants. We got a really special guest for you guys today, Bob Papa, color commentator for this New York Giants team. And honestly, I don't, I don't want to tell everybody else, but I mute everybody else and put your voice on over the games because it's a lot more enjoyable to do that. You and Carl are so much better than everybody else. And, you know, I remember your voice going back to when I was a kid, just driving in the car with my parents. It's, you know, really special to have you on. It means a lot to Anthony and I. And, you know, you kind of, we kind of grew up with you. And this is like a really cool opportunity to, to discuss, you know, your, your kind of path to getting where you are and all that you've achieved. So we really appreciate you coming on, Bob. But how are you doing today, my friend? Good. You just made me feel old. Damn. <laughs> no, no we're just really feel, young. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't feel old. I'll tell you why. Because um, I have three grown sons, um, but I also have an eight-year-old. So um, when you when you say stuff like that, it's almost like now that my kids are grown and two of them have graduated from college and one's in college, but now that I have eight-year-old Max, it's almost like I've been transported back in time. So I don't feel as old as you make me sound uh, because I have an eight-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So you see the one, he was on a football practice, I imagine. Yeah, he had flag football practice last night. Grinding. That's awesome. So did, did all of your sons play football? Uh, yeah, they played on different levels, you know, like uh, flag and some play tackle and some played into high school. So uh, little man, you know, he get, always gets number 26. So he's, uh, nice. his nickname is Lil 26. And it's funny because uh, he played tackle football and I would get like these highlights and stuff like that of him. And uh, I would show him to Saquon and Saquon was like, oh man, that's a nice little cut back there. You know, so he calls him little 26 too. <laughs> I hope he has the quads to go with 26 because he has a lot to live up to. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome though. Um, so, you know, I wanted to kind of discuss your start in the industry, how you've gotten to where you are and, you know, doing this since what, 1995, I believe it's mm -hmm. been a long time calling the giants and you've been, you know, there for the super bowls. You've been there for some of the bad moments. We want to discuss kind of your favorite moments and moments that you're like, I don't want to remember those very much uh, to give us some contrast and all the, you know, all that you've experienced with this team and some of your favorite players that you've kind of been able to meet and, and talk with and people you become friends with over the years. Um, I find that to be just, just extremely cool and uh, really impressive to be with a team for an org organization for so long that has this kind of family mentality. So, you know, tell us about your start in the industry. What made you fall in love with being a color commentator and everything that you've accomplished? Um, it's, it's really, really cool to, to see you in this job for such a long time and being so successful at it. Well, I don't want to date myself, but you know, I grew up in an era before cable TV, believe it or not. So you had to listen on the radio. And, you know, in the early 1970s, you know, I had the blackout rule. So if the team, if the stadium wasn't sold out, if the home games weren't sold out, even home games wouldn't be on TV for the Giants. And the Knicks and Rangers would be, the Knicks would be on the road every Friday night. So you'd watch them on Channel 9. And then they'd be home every Saturday night, so you'd listen on the radio. And the Rangers would be on the road um, on Saturday nights, so you would watch a Rangers game and then listen to a Rangers game on Sunday nights. It felt like they were home every Sunday night. Same thing with football. 
I mean, there were a lot of giant games that you couldn't watch. So you listened on the radio. Um, there was no cable TV. So I became, I became in love with it from when I was a little kid. I remember like, you know, listening to the giant game or even if we were watching it, but my dad's like, all right, we got to rake the leaves at halftime. And we'd have the radio out and we'd plug it in. And as we're raking the leaves in Dumont, New Jersey, you know, we're listening to, you know, it was uh, Marv Albert was there. Then it was Jim Gordon for a long time. So I kind of fell in love with the whole thing. And I started doing play-by-play of my mom doing the dishes. And I did play-by-play as I played basketball and as I played football. So it just became this passion for me. And then I wound up at Fordham, which has, you know, one of the best college radio stations in the country. And, you know, I made a lot of contacts and one thing led to another. And I wound up at WNEWAM, which was the flagship home for the Giants. Uh, The great Marty Glickman hired me to be his backup on Seton Hall radio broadcast. That's when Seton Hall had those great teams of the late 80s. And um, that also happened to be the radio home of the New York Giants. So I started doing the pregame show or the postgame show, the Giants point after. FAN had just started. So sports talk was new. And um, I came up with the idea of this thing called the Giants point after, which was after the regular postgame show ended, we started doing a call-in show, a 90-minute call-in show. So that got me involved with the team in 88 and 89. And then uh, I did my first game as a fill-in in in 92. The Giants played the Rams in Anaheim. Jerome Bettis was a rookie, I think, for the Rams that year. Uh, And then I filled in uh, in Miami for Jim Gordon in 93 when Sims and Dan Reeves and LT went down there. And they, uh, I think LT like knocked Steve DeBerg out of the game or whatever. Uh, so I got my feet wet. And then when Jim Gordon retired in 95, I took over and it's been a fun ride ever since. Yeah, it's been a fun ride, but there's definitely been ups and downs with the New York Giants. I mean, like you've had the highest highs calling a couple Super Bowls, but you've also had the lowest lows, even calling a Super Bowl that the Giants lost and everything. But I guess my question is like when the Giants have those really down periods, like especially the last five years. Right. And they're playing poor nine football. of the last ten. <laughs> right, exactly. The last decade has been miserable for Giants fans, but this year it's been great. It was really exciting. Do those good moments feel all that much better after going through like dark ages calling those games? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, um, you know, 95, 96, they weren't good. Then they kind of came out of nowhere and won the division uh, in 97, Fossil's first year. That was exciting. Um, And then it kind of turned down again and then it got good in 2000 and bad in 2001. You know, I never I didn't have this long stretch, you know, until we got to 2013, 14. And then, you know, the last 10 years, 11 years have been like have been hell for Giants fans. But you still have to do the job. Right. You still have to call the games. And you still remind yourself every time that you get off the bus on a road game and get into the stadium or a home game that, damn, I got one of 32 really special jobs. So, you know, as bad as the team might have been during that stretch or whatever, still, it's pretty awesome. And, you know, you kind of hope that they'll get it turned around. And certainly I've, I've had more than my fair share of great moments, too. But, you know, you remember the bad ones. I mean, you don't remember the bad seasons. You remember the bad moments, like the 97 playoff loss to the Vikings when they, you know, the Vikings scored nine points in the last minute and a half of the game. Tito Wooten's fighting in the end zone with his teammates, 
You remember that? The one that really, I mean, Super Bowl 35 is like, you know, I watched that game recently. It was on NFL Network last offseason. And it's amazing how much more competitive the game was than the final score would indicate. And, you know, the uh, the Jesse Armstead pick six return for a touchdown that was called back, kind of screwed the Giants. I think the one game, well, there's like, there's two, there's two horrible, horrible moments, right? Um, obviously, the Deshaun Jackson play, because that's that a pretty good Giants team. But the maybe the worst of them all was the 0-2 playoff loss in San Francisco when they blew the gigantic lead because that team was a really good team um, with Kerry Collins at quarterback. Late in the season, they had gone to Indianapolis and they hung 40 on the Colts. And his deep balls to Amani Toomer and company were awesome. And I'll never forget, I was working the I was working for Westwood One at the time, and. I got assigned the uh, the next week to go to Tampa to pl- uh, for the Bucks broadcast, um, the national broadcast with Bob Trumpy, and um, I'll never forget because there was a bunch of guys on the Bucks that I knew through Tiki and Roman Oban was with the Bucks and he had been with the Giants. And I remember talking to some people on the field before the game, and the Bucks even said, "Man, I was some loss last week," you know. We're not upset that the Giants weren't aren't here because the Giants were a tough matchup for that Tampa defense. Um, and because the Giants played physical and they ran the ball so well. And um, I think that team could have been pretty special, the 0-2 team. You know, it's kind of funny. You like look back at all these Giants moments and all the success they had. And, and I don't recall, at least as, as long as I've been watching this team, that they've been like dominant for like a long stretch of time. You know, even looking at, the Eagles are really good right now. A couple of years are just, uh, you know, the, the the Patriots and how dominant they were with Tommy. They kind of just like arrive and then they're really good in the playoffs. And you don't expect, I remember seeing uh, one of my favorite moments. I'm sure this is one of your favorites as well. Was that uh, Victor Cruz 99 yard touchdown on Christmas day. I remember that moment kind of being the difference in that season. Like everything after that was so much better than before. And it was just that like catalyst for success. And, it, everyone, everything felt different after that one moment. Um, but what is like the one moment you look back on and is like, this is my favorite moment calling the game. It has to be either the Plaxico Barres or the, um, you know, David Tyree catch. But maybe, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's something more special and meaningful to you. Yeah, I mean, those are the low hanging fruit ones, right? Anything in a Super Bowl. I mean, that's, you know, that's that. Those are easy ones to point out. But like. Um, you know, the 2000 divisional playoff against the Eagles when Ron Dixon returns the opening kickoff for a touchdown, you could feel Giant Stadium shaking and Jason Seahorn's incredible pick six or the NFC championship game when they beat the Vikings 41 to nothing. You know, those are moments that like really jump out at you. The, the playoff game in the 07 playoff run in Green Bay you know, where Antonio Pierce splits three defenders and makes this tackle that would have gone for a touchdown on a screen. Um, uh, Not only the Victor Cruz 99-yard catch and run, but if you remember the Giants that season, defensively, they were ranked. O.C. was hurt a lot. Tuck was hurt a lot. Their defense was not ranked very well in the NFL. And they were, I think, 31st in the league in yards per carry offensively. And their running game was ranked like 30th that year. I mean, Eli carried them in 2011. 
But when Bradshaw ran over the safety of the Jets at the end of that game on Christmas Eve, Knocked it was out. almost as if it was almost as if the the Giants of 2007 and 2008 had resurfaced. Um, and then from that point on, they ran the hell out of the ball um, and they played unbelievable defense. It was like that moment flipped the switch for them. You know, you talk about it. It's funny because, you know, I started first doing the pre and the post game in 88. You know, from 84 to 90, they were dominant. Like for that seven-year period, they were a threat to win the Super Bowl every year. And they got off to a 10-0 and start in 90. Um, if Sims doesn't get hurt, I still think they're winning the Super Bowl, and now Phil's a Hall of Famer. Um, and then I think about the 08 team. You know, like the 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 08 Giants are the best of the Coughlin teams by far. Ask any player, any guy in the team. And when Plaxico, you know, had his unfortunate situation, it changed everything because he was the kryptonite for the Eagles. And if you think about it, from – you know, prior to that, Giants fans don't remember this, but in the Fossil era and in the early part of the Coughlin era, the Giants owned Philadelphia. They beat them regularly, constantly, because they couldn't deal with Plaxico Burris. And then when he shot himself in the leg and wasn't available for the playoff game, that was kind of the turning point. And from that point on, the Giants have lost 25 of 30 to the Eagles starting with that playoff game. Um, so, you, you know, they've had some dominant stretches. Even 2010, I mean, they went ten. They won 10 games and didn't make the playoffs. So from like 05 to 2010, you know, they were pretty good. Yeah, and you mentioned in there kind of things turning around and a switch getting flipped for the Giants, like uh, with the Bradshaw running over the safety and everything. And so we've been talking about how we've had this really bad period of Giants teams for the last decade or so. But now it feels like a different switch got flipped. It's not momentum carrying into the postseason, but it's kind of like the team is really turning itself around. You know, the entrance of the new regime with Joe Shane and Brian Dable. What a start to, to that regime. Uh, first year playoffs, a playoff win for the first time since the Super Bowl in 2012. But what's kind of the difference that you felt around the the organization right now with this new regime taking over uh, a lot of different ideas they've come with uh that's uh, not all same think you know the assistant general manager brandon brown comes from philadelphia kafka comes from the andy reed tree wink comes from a uh you know a, a rex and rob ryan tree with baltimore dable comes through the the Belichick, which is in a, in a longer-term connection through Parcells. Joe Shane worked for Bill Parcells in Miami. So there's there's old giant connections, but there's a lot of new, fresh ideas. And look, the reason why it's been so bad since 2012-13 is because it started with bad drafts in 2011. And you can't hide from bad drafting. And then over a over about a nine or 10 year stretch, if you did a draft grade and you graded players drafted, players who became core players, players who became Pro Bowl players, players who became good players for you, players who stayed in the league, and then you factored in the guys that were drafted that washed out of the league fast, 
the Giants had one of the worst draft records in the NFL. That's just a fact. And when you draft that poorly, you know, it's it's hard to sustain anything. And um, I remember um, Kevin Gilbride, the old offensive coordinator, and Pat Flaherty, the offensive line coach. I mean, they were they were lobbying to rebuild that offensive line that Snee and Soybert and O'Hara and all those guys are getting old and McKenzie and they and they either drafted guys that were bad or they ignored it and they thought that they could just sign guys and use because Flaherty was going to work some magic and that all kind of fell apart. Then Jerry Reese to try to cover up for the bad drafts that they had went out and spent all that money and you got a burst in 2016, but then it went away. Why did it go away? Because when you overpay for other people's free agents, they're mercenaries. And when your core is built off free agents, you do not have sustainability. You have to, win in the draft, and then you use free agency to supplement. So this new group comes in with a a very good mindset. And hopefully the 2022 New York Giants draft is akin to the 1984 draft when they took Carl Banks and they started, you know, the 84, 85, 86, 87, 88, 89 Giants drafts were off the charts. And, that's why they were so good. And I think that's why this year's draft is huge for the Giants because the 22 draft looks like it's going to be really good. Um, but you got to stack a couple in a row to really build your foundation. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really well said. We've kind of been on the same train for a while in terms of, like you said, Jerry spent all that money. And then you have Dave Gettleman doing a very similar thing bringing in all these big free agents, you know, Letter Williams trading for him, giving him a big contract, Norris Jenkins, you know, paying guys across the board. And it didn't pan out in the drafts. Those, some of those mid-round picks were just, it's a graveyard for the Giants the last couple of years. Um, this past draft seemed to be a lot more solid, but a lot of injuries kind of arose and um, kind of set that draft back a little bit. We love Kayvon Thibodeau. We're still very optimistic on Evan Neal. You know, Dane Belton had the broken clavicle, so I'll give him a break there. Marcus McKethan with a torn ACL. We were really high on Darian Beavers, and then he got his ACL tear as well. So Wandell Robinson ACL. A lot of these, you know, rookies just got hurt. Um, But you're right. This upcoming draft is the most important draft. And I guess that kind of leads me to asking you, Saquon, Daniel Jones, Julian Love, all these guys who are free agents right now. How important do you think it is to retain these guys? And, you know, as you mentioned the word foundation before, they're part of that foundation. And to draft successfully, you have to keep that foundation because they're not mercenaries. You're paying your own guys. You're paying guys that you know the work ethic they're going to bring. Daniel Jones. And one thing I really, really love about Daniel Jones is that four years have passed. He's gotten a ton of criticism, as we know. And he's never said a word about it. You know, I love the fact that he is just stands that he just is behind the scenes, working hard, getting better and never, you know, shows any sort of frustration or anything. Very, very few times have I ever seen him yell or anything. I think there was one time this past season when um, Marcus Johnson dropped a pass and he was like, catch the ball. That was like the first time I ever saw Daniel Jones show any sort of emotion. And, you know, how important do you think it is to retain these guys, maintain that foundation, and then build upon that in the draft instead of maybe having to go and get a quarterback, which could become a huge – you might be mortgaging your future because you have to move up in the draft or you're going to trade for somebody. You know, I guess that my question is how important it is to retain guys like Daniel Jones because of what they've built here in their work ethic? It's important. And, and you 
uh, Joe Shane didn't hide any of his cards, you know, the two days after the season ended when he had his postseason press conference. And he said, basically, he goes, you know, we, we want to keep our core guys. We want to keep the guys that were drafted that we view as part of our core because we've had them in the building. We know how they work. We know how they fit into what we're doing. These guys have become young leaders. You know, that's how you spread the gospel throughout the course of your locker room. And, you know, he wants to keep core guys that he didn't draft. But this year has shown who do you keep? Who do we move on from? And there's going to be a whole bunch of guys that they'll be looking to move on from that were draft picks over the last couple of years. But they want to keep Dexter Lawrence. They want to keep Xavier McKinney. They know that Andrew Thomas is going to have a deal that's going to have to get reckoned with sooner rather than later. That's why when people talk about this salary cap space that they have, just because you have it doesn't mean you need to use it all, right? I mean, uh, as far as free agency is concerned, you know, you if you can re-sign your own guys, you can spread money out, keep yourself cap healthy. Plus, you have some certainty on it as far as knowing the player, knowing their injury history, and knowing how they fit in your culture. So I would expect the Giants to be very active in trying to keep, you know, who they want to keep. Um, we can guess all we want how much they want to keep Julian Love or how much they want to keep this one or that one. The dollars and cents will tell us how much because you can always find money if you want to find money. I learned that lesson a long Amani Toomer taught me that a long time ago. And I think Felipe Sparks had said it when they were you know, he was a, a second round pick and he was a really good player and they went out and they wanted to bring some corner in. And I remember Sparks was looking for a new contract and they kind of said, well, we don't really have the money and then uh, cap flexibility. But then they paid somebody else a lot of money and brought him in. And the lesson is there's always money. They can always find money if they want to find money. Right. So I think they'll try everything they can to find money and find ways to keep their own guys. And I think that starts with the quarterback because, I mean, you don't want to, you don't want to have to use the franchise tag and then have your $32 million locked up during free agency. And then by the time you get a deal done and reconcile it and then spread all that money out and get a long-term deal, well, you just missed all the free agency. So I think it would be important for them for cost certainty moving forward, because they don't look at the cap just for this year. They're looking at it for 24 and 25. Um, I think getting the quarterback done is the is the right answer. And there's nobody on the street right now. Because um, I don't count Lamar Jackson and who you know Aaron Rodgers is going to do what he does. But for all these other guys that are potentially on the street, whether it's Baker Mayfield, Derek Carr, um, Jimmy Garoppolo, who if you're going to sign Garoppolo, you have to be ready and knowing that you're going to get maybe 12 games out of him each year or 13 games, and you better have a great backup because he's probably going to get hurt. Um, I would take Daniel Jones over all of them in a heartbeat. I mean, what he's done with his legs, what he's done with an inferior inside of the offensive line, what he's done with a B list of wide receivers – is off the charts and you saw when they stepped up in the big in, in a big spot against a really good defense you know Hodgins is a nice story and 
Richie James is a nice story and Slayton is a good story and they're all really good number threes. But if you think any of those guys is a number two, the Philly game should be a wake-up call to you because outside of Richie James being open and dropping what should have been a walk-in 80-yard touchdown when the game was out of reach, um, they weren't getting open. They were not getting open because they were going against a real defense. And if you want to get to a championship level, you need some big-time playmakers. Yeah, and I think getting those playmakers will be the big objective for the Giants this offseason. But when we talk about like that quarterback market, right, and discussing some of those guys that might be available, I saw an analyst, I think it was Kyle Brandt, say that there's no middle class on quarterbacks and that if you want to pay for a quarterback, even if it's a low-end starter quarterback, you're still paying at this point in the NFL around $30 million per season. So what are kind of your thoughts on the quarterback market and the way that those contracts have just inflated to that extreme degree and they're not being a so-called middle class on quarterbacks. And then when we also look well, at the state one So here's where I disagree with Kyle and I love Kyle. Mm-hmm. There is a middle class on quarterbacks, but the middle class is now fans don't want to hear it and media members don't want to hear it. The middle class number is now starting with a three. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody needs to get out of their brain. Uh, you know, the middle class number of, oh, you, you know, sign into a relatively team friendly deal for twenty three and a half million dollars. It's now thirty three and a half million dollars right. because guess what? Aaron Rodgers is due to make fifty nine this year. That's half. Mahomes accelerators are going to kick into his contract. He's going to be making over 50. So if you're saying that twenty three was middle class when the guys were making 40, now that the top guys are going to be making over 50, 33 is now the middle class. There is still a middle class based on what the top guys are making. And with the top guys now going well over 40, um, and, you know, Burrow and those guys are going to be going to 50, 33 is now middle class. So people have to get that out of their brain. You know, this whole I see all these Giants fans on all these chat things and they're like, I would never sign Jones for 30 something million, you know, a 23 million. It's not happening. Middle class is now in the mid 30s. OK, Carson Wentz is making in the mid 30s. Um, Goff is making in the mid 30s. You know, that's where your middle class is. So if, it's not your money, folks. So don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> and in relation, in relation to the cap and in relation to what the high-end quarterbacks are making now and are due to make in the next three years, like when Lamar Jackson either gets franchised with the exclusive for 42 or he gets his deal, he's going to be making somewhere around 45 to $50 million. So 33 or 34 is middle class. So there yeah, is still a that's, middle class. Yeah. That's a good Just point. That's a good point. Went up. That's all it is. Yeah. Good perspective. You know, I didn't even think it keeps of it going up in too. that in that way. And yeah, it just inflates every single year. And then the other part of it is the Giants, they're going to pay Daniel Jones, and that's going to start with a three in front of it, as you mentioned. But then the negotiations with Saquon Barkley are almost just as interesting to me because we've we've seen reports that he turned down 12 million and then you have Giants fans, as you mentioned, who like to pretend it's their own money, get really angry and say, no, we can't go up to 16. That's egregious. But I think that'll be really interesting as well, because we've seen that running back market 
where we've seen the quarterback market just skyrocket in recent years, but the running back market has seemed to kind of fallen. And, you know, when we're talking about prioritizing the free agents and retaining your own, where do you think Saquon Barkley falls into that being in this tricky place where he's a total superstar talent, you know, one of the best players in the NFL at his position, but that position is unfortunately not nearly as valuable as he necessarily is to the Giants. So how do you think that situation ends up shaping out? That's going to be the hard one. And I think that's where maybe a tag has to come and play until you can figure out a long-term deal. Because, you know, I, I, I say this all the time. Um, and who doesn't love Saquon, right? But what team, how many teams in the last 23 years, if you go back to 2000, where the Ravens were one of the great defenses of all time. They had Shannon Sharp, who was a great tight end. And then they had the running back. And outside of him and Marshawn Lynch, how many teams have won a Super Bowl where there's the high-paid stud running back is the focal point? I gave you two. And the running back for the Ravens happened to be a rookie. And Lynch was an acquisition from Buffalo. But who were the Giants running backs when they won their two Super Bowls? When Philadelphia wins the Super Bowl this year, if they win the Super Bowl this year, do they, do they, do they, who's their stud? All the money's going into the one back. Who are the running backs for all the Patriots Super Bowl wins? Like, who, you know, the Steelers won a Super Bowl in 05, and then they got to another Super Bowl. Different cast of characters. Can you name me Aaron Rodgers running back when they won the Super Bowl? No. It's running back by committee. It's running back by group. It's running back by strength of the position group, but not Ezekiel Elliott or not Derrick Henry or not, not in this era. You want to go back to when I was a kid and give me Tony Dorsett and Franco Harris, and you can go through, you know, the whole Joe Morris and the giant running game with Otis Anderson and Rodney Hampton. You want to go to that era? That's different. In this era, do, do you remember the names of the Colts running backs when they won the Super Bowl with Peyton? Denver, all the Super Bowls that they won. Yeah, everyone knows Terrell Davis from the late 90s, but when give me name me the two running backs for uh, Denver when Peyton won his last Super Bowl. Like Ronnie Hillman, maybe? <laughs> oh, Sean Moreno. Yeah, but, yeah but Sean my, Moreno. My point is, is that they have to figure out what they're going to do with that. If they can get him on a long-term deal at a right price, mm -hmm. where then you can also draft some young guys and you use Saquon in a various bunch of ways. But if you're going to just sign a guy and he's going to be your bell cow and you don't win Super Bowls that way in this year. Yeah. You know, Saquon is the most interesting kind of dynamic on this team because off the field and what he does as a captain, as a, a locker room catalyst to bring everybody together, you know, he's a leader on that team. There has to be some sort of value place on that, right? Like, you know, Huge. I understand the running back position is like, you know, definitely obsolete in some respects. And, you know, you kind of have to say, all right, you know, a wide receiver, a top receiver, you look, you know, even the Chiefs are kind of surviving without one. Um, but then you look at the Eagles, A.J. Brown, Devonta Smith, like a lot of the great teams have great receivers and the running back position, like you said, is kind of by committee. But 
when you look at the at like the aspects of what that specific running back brings, Saquon is so much more than just a running back. And I like the well, idea McCaffrey of with the 49ers. I mean, right. They're running backs, but they're also receivers. You know, exactly. they're, they're, they're giving you both. They're giving you the Le'Veon Bell experience where they can mm-hmm. run routes as well as they can run the ball. Jamal Charles. Yeah. Yeah. But the question is how much are you willing to pay for? It? And are right. you willing to go to a certain point that might cause you to lose Xavier McKinney? Or that might cause you, you know, like, or down the road, maybe not being able to keep somebody that you just drafted this year that you want to be a part of your core in two or three years because you kind of capped out because you got these balloon payments now going to one position. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the answer is. It's the it's the trick because between he and Daniel Jones, they were the entire offense this year. Yeah. I mean, it was like a two man band. Um. So I don't know. It's a hard. It's a hard. It's a hard question to answer. But you know what? Um, the truth will be spoken when it becomes tag time, becomes contract time, or contract negotiations. Because remember something else that Joe Shane said during that last press conference. He said something very important. Everybody has a walk away number, mm-hmm. and he remember that because. There's two things that he said that were brilliant this year. Never shop hungry when he didn't make a reckless deal at the trade deadline because they weren't, they really weren't a Super Bowl team. Then mm-hmm. a rock that you would think could really go win a Super Bowl. And that, and one receiver would not have made the difference to give up a first round draft pick to go get Jerry Judy or whatever. I don't think the Giants are beating Philadelphia regardless because unless Jerry Judy could stop the run. Uh, <laughs> So, and then the other thing he said was, you know, we're going to go through all this and we're going to grade all the players. We're going to talk about priorities, but you have to have a walk away number. Mm-hmm. So we're going to find out what that is. And we, all the rest of us are just guessing. We can guess. You can do Fireside Giants. I could do my Believe in Giants podcast with Carl Banks. In a few minutes, I'm going to go on my Sirius XM NFL radio show with Charlie Weiss, and we're going to talk about this stuff. But we're all just guessing. Only they know. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, I, I have to say, you know, when it comes to Daniel Jones and, you know, we'll wrap it up. So I, I know you have to go soon, but when it comes to Daniel Jones and his passing metrics, you know, this year wasn't exceptional as a quarterback in terms of the passing game, but again, offensive line receivers definitely held it back to a degree. Um, do you think that he has the capabilities to maximize a wide receiver one? Like we look at Eli Manning and Plaxico and Victor Cruz's development, turning into that guy and Hakeem Nix and, Eli made those guys so much better than, you know, what they might have been with another quarterback because he gave them the opportunities to make plays. He threw up risky balls to David Tyree or whatever it might be. He gave them opportunities to be wide receiver ones. Do you think Daniel Jones has that in him to be, you know, giving those guys risks, but high probability risks, you know, being that guy that can cure reduction um, and just be a great quarterback in that sense because a lot of his production was supplemented by the running game. You know, he had seven rushing touchdowns, over 700 rushing yards. Can he pair that with phenomenal passing, you know, metrics as well to go with a wide receiver one and really help make the most of a guy like that? You know, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I you know, I, I kind of defer to the people that know, like the Phil Sims of the world that study all this stuff. Um, and believe it or not, like a guy like Rex Ryan, who since August, 
has gone on ESPN and said the Giants don't need a franchise quarterback. They got one right there. They just got to get some better people around them. Right. Yes, yeah, Daniel Jones has more than enough arm talent to, with better skill position players, have more production. I mean, there's, there's, there is no doubt in my mind with that. And like, I, like I've said a zillion times, you know, how many games this season did the Giants play where the opposing team – GM would have ever called up Joe Shane and said, um, what do you want for one of your three receivers? Okay. There's not, they might've played one game this year where the opposing team might've wanted one of the giants receivers, but in every other game they played, every giant fan in the world would have taken the other team's third receiver. Forget about one and two. Look at Washington. I mean, we, we could go through the list. So, yeah, let's see what Daniel Jones has with better players. You know what? Again, we guess they know. So Joe Shane and Brian Dable and Kafka, as they went through all their stuff, if they franchise them, they're telling you yes. If they do a long-term deal with them, they're telling you yes. If negotiations kind of hit this thing and they're kind of tap dancing, pitter pattering around, because there's a lot of teams that need quarterbacks. The entire NFC South needs a quarterback. You put Daniel Jones on the Jets this past season, they've won, they'll win 11 games with those receivers in that defense. Indianapolis needs a quarterback. The Raiders need a quarterback. There's a lot of teams that need quarterbacks. Houston needs a quarterback. Tennessee needs a quarterback. Um, he hits the open market, he's going to ask for a lot of money. And if the Giants don't believe that he really can get to a next level, they're not going to just pay him just because. They will not do that. So we're all just guessing here. Yeah, it's a guessing game. And I think especially because even in college, we never saw Daniel Jones with a top-end receiver or any kind of talent. Playing at Duke, he was – his whole career, he's never really had, other than Saquon Barkley when he's been healthy, he's never really had an X-Factor to play alongside. When we talk about X-Factors that we play alongside, you play alongside an X-Factor in your own right with Carl Banks. How has that been? Like, what is the experience, you know, doing the play-by-play with Carl Banks? He, I think the two of you, the team that you guys have created, and you've also been doing it for so long. He was playing with the Giants until 92, and you mentioned that you did a couple games in 92. Did you ever call some games uh, while Carl Banks was playing for the Giants? And how has that relationship that you guys have created really developed over the years and created such a great team? Yeah, I mean, we've done a lot together. Um, yeah, I mean, he he, I, he used to on the old WNEWAM. He had a he had a he Carl was always a businessman. He had a relationship with Diet Coke, so we had I had to do the Carl Banks report twice a week with him. In the old Giants stadium, we would record it in the officials' bathroom. We'd record it in the tunnel, in his car, at his locker. Um, so, like, we we go back to 1988 when I started doing it. Um, and then we did – God, I even got him on a boxing telecast once as, like, a sideline reporter for uh, some pay-per-view I did. So, yeah, we we he's one of the smartest football guys I've ever met. He – we, he showed me, he's taught me how to watch coaches tape, um, what to look for, what not to, what the average person looks at that they shouldn't be looking at. And here's what you really should be looking for. Um, 
Yeah, he's brilliant. He's uh, he's brilliant when it comes to X's and O's. Um, and I learn something from him every week, just doing the TV shows with him, doing the podcast, but doing the games. He just points things out that, you know, a trained eye can see. And, you know, the rest of us, if you never played in the NFL, there's certain things that you're just not looking for that they look for. Hey, guys, I, I hate to cut this off. I got to hop because my show starts in four minutes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we appreciate you coming on so much. We figured it was like 10, 10 o'clock is, is the cutoff time, but we appreciate yeah. your time a lot, Bob. Thank you so much for teaching us a lot about you know your story and all the things that a lot of fans are asking themselves right now about this Giants team and a lot of the history. Um, just a, a wealth of information. So thank you a lot. And we hope you have a fantastic rest of your day. And let's go, Giants. Yeah, all right. No.